You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And uh, before we start today, I want to remind you that there's a website associated with this podcast called wealthformula.com. Lots of resources for you to check out there. This is, a, by the time you hear this, it'll be, I believe, the week before Christmas. Is that right? Holy cow. Yeah, maybe that's right. And it's time to buy presents. You might consider buying a course for people. The Wealth Formula Roadmap is a course that we did a few years ago, and it has the likes of Tom Wheelwright and Kenny McElroy and some of these really smart guys to talk about personal finance. That actually leads into a private group called Wealth Formula Network. We do bi-weekly Zoom calls there. We also uh, have a Facebook group. And so it's a good opportunity if you're interested or if you want to potentially gift somebody something like this for Christmas. It's the gift that keeps on giving. You can check it out at wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, let's talk a little bit today about cash. And you know, I don't usually specifically talk about offerings, uh, but this uh, that we have an investor club, but I will here because it's relevant. As you know, we have a private automatic teller machine offering called the WF Velocity Fund. You can learn all about that at wfvelocity.com. This is basically a way of buying into a tranche of ATMs and then benefiting from their the cash that they throw out. Anyway, great tax play too. Potentially, if you're interested, there is a 100% bonus depreciation this year. Uh, I think the deadline that we have is the 28th. Anyway, I am bringing that up because I've you know personally been invested in it for about six or seven years. No issue. I mean, money always comes as the pro forma suggests it would. And, you know, it's it's interesting because you wonder, like, what's the what's the risk in these things? Certainly operational stuff and all that, but it's pretty low in, in these big companies like this. And the real thing that I usually think about when I invest in ATM machines is the potential for the end of cash, right? Is it possible? Well, yeah, of course it is. In fact, I would say that there will come a day when cash is obsolete. I um, mean, and, and if you look at China, China's there already. However, we're not China. There are many differences in inherent in their culture and their government that really have made it so that the cashless society has been uh, quicker to evolve. But I keep hearing people talking about worrying about the end of cash, and I get it. But they're talking about central bank distributed ledger tokens uh, as a risk to cash. But in my view, that doesn't really make any sense. The only thing that I see here is the advantage of blockchain technology over the old-fashioned SWIFT system and all that. And remember, most U.S. dollars are already digital. So what is central bank digitized dollars? You know, what is its purpose? And really, if you think about it, it's mostly to upgrade the current technologies of digital cash as it is. The issue is that cash right now in America is important to our society because it allows some levels of money transfer that's truly private. 
And imagine for a second, you know, if all of the money you spent went through this government-run tracking system, every penny that you spent. I bet you wouldn't like that. I certainly wouldn't myself. And of course, lawmakers know that as well. You know, lawmakers know that that would not be a popular thing to do. And that is why there is absolutely zero talk of this in Congress. It's not something that's on the table. And in that regard, it's not something that is uh, likely to happen anytime soon. Sure, I think eventually we'll probably be without cash, but it's it's not going to happen overnight. The end of cash is, I would say, in my humble opinion, that's a generational change, right? That it's going to take a lot of support of, of us for that to actually happen. And that day's not here because I don't think, and I don't think it will be for a while. Going back to the fund, the way I have always thought about this is, well, it's seven-year fund, and if you get your return of your capital in, you know, three or four years, depending on your tax situation, you know, that's what your calculus is. Do you really think that cash is going to go away in four years? I don't really think it is. I think eventually there there may be a, a big uh, ding on this uh, cash world, but I, I'm thinking more in the the decades uh, rather than in, in the four or five years coming up. Anyway, that's my own take, though, my own opinion. So don't uh, take that as fact, and I don't want you to think of that as any sort of investment advice either. But you certainly can go and, and learn about what we do at WFVelocity.com. But, you know, as for this whole cash issue, I think, you know, don't take my word for it, right? Listen to this week's interview that I do with a guy who is an expert on finance and technology. He's basically studied this very closely. He's seen all that's what's happened to China. He's written a book on the topic. It's really fascinating stuff. Hope you enjoy it. And we will get to it right after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Martin Orzampa. Martin is an author. He's an international market expert and senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He gained expertise in financial innovation while in Germany as a Fulbright scholar and researcher uh, at the Association of German Banks. He's also the author of The Cashless Revolution, China's Reinvention of Money and the End of America's Domination of Finance and Technology. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I should start out uh, just by, I mean, you know, the title of your book is obviously pretty shocking in a way because the cash, well, cashless revolution, obviously, but, you know, the end of American domination and all that. Maybe the best place to start for our listeners is to try to understand what exactly China's got going on right now that that's, uh, you know, I know that... Um, you know, China is largely, a ca- it's a cashless society and all that, but I don't think our listeners know the extent of that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I actually moved to Beijing in mid-2013. And at that point, going to China looked felt like going back in time from the United States. You know, here we have our great credit cards with reward points. You can just type in your information, order something online. Everything's pretty convenient. And then in China, nobody would even accept my debit card that was Chinese issued. So everybody paid for just about anything in cash. And the only thing that you could do in for investments and all that were generally controlled by the government with low interest rates. So it really didn't look like the future of finance 
but in an extremely short period of time, everything became digital. So your average Chinese person doesn't need to bring their wallet around with them anymore. The average Chinese beggar has a little QR code printed out, uh, strung over their neck so that people can scan a code to give them money because cash just disappeared. What happened is two of its most successful internet companies added payments and all sorts of financial services to their you know, social media, gaming, and e-commerce apps to create uh, what's what we call a super app, which can do something that you would probably take you know, a dozen or so United States applications to be able to approximate what you can do. I mean, you can get a loan, you can make investments, you can pay for things online and offline, you can hail a taxi, travel, show your government ID, just about anything in this in this one, which makes it incredibly powerful. So just to just to be clear, so that's um, a, was that app? You said it was sort of a a team effort of multiple Chinese companies, tech companies, or was it just Alibaba? Or, or? there are two super apps, uh, and then a few contenders for becoming part of the exclusive club. One of them is WeChat that it was created by China's most successful social media and gaming company, Tencent. And then there's another one called Alipay, which is centered around e-commerce. So although each of them have kind of a separate main base, it's like, you know, imagine if Amazon launched one and Facebook launched a super app uh, that does a lot of the same thing, but comes from a different type of company. Why did this catch on the way it did? Um, I mean, obviously, China still has a fairly significant poor population as well. I mean, just wondering about their access to technology and all that. But, but how? Why did this catch on the way it did? Was it really encouraged by the government as well? Yeah. So the government role is super interesting. People have this view of China that you know uh, everything that's successful in China is due to big subsidies and the state, uh, you know, pushing it. But actually, this is really fundamentally about the state uh, attempt to do that, leaving everything backward. You know, if you go there and everything's in cash, it's pretty inconvenient. So if you think about fintech in the U.S. versus fintech in China, it's it's much better for fintech to be competing with really uh, weak state-owned banks that are not very innovative with cash and all that. Whereas if you're a fintech company in the U.S., you got to try to get people off their rewards cards. So in China, it's kind of backwardness of the existing system was actually an advantage to have them leap ahead in ways that we don't really have as much an incentive to do because things generally work pretty well. And that causes us not to make the improvements that China can when it's kind of creating a new system from scratch. So I'm thinking about, you know, the the role of digital currencies um, and one of the, you know, movements of the, of the U.S. towards that and um, people have uh, uh, considered the possibility of, of, you know, the government having visibility to everything and the end of privacy in any sort of way. But in China, if these companies are, you know, they're private companies, do, does the government have visibility in those transactions? Yeah, this is actually one of the most interesting things uh, that I discovered in the book is that you, you have all these government officials griping about how these private companies are not willing to share the data with them. They ask over and over and the company says, we're still working on it. We're still cleaning the data. So you have this authoritarian one party state that is unable to get data that it wants uh, in many cases from, from companies. Now, the interesting question is, is that still true today? Because, you know, eventually the government gets fed up 
and kind of asserts itself over these companies. But I think it's still this really interesting battle where the government wants access to more of this financial data. But, you know, the companies know that it's their main asset. And if they share it with the state, they don't know if it's going to be protected. They don't know if it'll be, you know, shared with their state-owned competitors. So you have a, a really interesting tug, uh, tug of war here that people might not expect is happening in China because of the nature of its system. You talk about the end of America's domination of finance and technology. Uh, talk a little bit about that because, I mean, obviously we've, you know, we've heard now about, you know, just the, the issue of a cashless society in China, but I mean, how does that equate to domination in, of finance and technology? Can you expand on some of the other things that you might be referring to there? Sure. So you know, we're just really used to in the United States being at the forefront of innovation in just about every area, right? Silicon Valley companies create the future in the U.S. and then eventually that gets copycatted into China. You know, the flow of ideas is kind of from the avant-garde in the U.S. to China. And what we've seen is actually a flow of ideas has shifted and gone the other direction. Now people like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk look at China and say, we want to create a super app in the United States. We think what they've created there is better and something that we should bring here. So if you want to understand what the implications of the future of finance are, you don't look in the United States, you look to China for a preview of the future. And I think that's pretty, uh, pretty jarring. The other element is that once these companies are really strong in China, they're not just going to be content with the Chinese market. They're going to try and expand their, um, expand their prowess abroad where they're going to go head to head with American companies in the tech and the finance space. What's really interesting is that so far the U S companies have really held their own in places like India, uh, WhatsApp owned by Facebook has completely outcompeted WeChat uh, owned by Tencent in China to get Indian people, you know, when they're texting each other, they're usually using WhatsApp. And on top of that, now they're building a payment system, but we really can't be complacent. We can't have this idea that these Chinese companies, just because their first attempt to go abroad hasn't been successful, that that's not going to last. And China is also creating a central bank digital currency where it's experimenting with other central banks around the world to try and eliminate dollars from their cross-border payments. And that's something that could erode, if it's really successful, uh, could erode the role of the U.S. dollar and the power of the U.S. to kind of dominate the global financial system. I'm kind of interested in understanding the role of future potential super apps in the U.S. and and how that would um, interplay with the government, the U.S. government, which obviously there's a there will be a strong desire to you know maintain the integrity of the dollar and not go to some token system, the ability to track things for tax purposes and all that. Are, how far along are we in that journey? And um, if, if at all, and, and how, and, and what are some of the issues that are coming up? Yeah. So I, I actually think that there's going to be increasing pressure for our, for big tech companies in the United States to enter finance. If you look at Apple, for example, you see introduction of buy now, pay later, big expansion of Apple Pay, their own card, you know, trying to work around and create their own payment system. There's a sense where the big tech companies want to do things like in China, and that could bring some useful innovation. But the Chinese experience tells us that there are some real risks there. 
that you have this concentration of power, conflicts of interest, and also potential temptation for the government to use that as a way to control people. That is, uh, that is very concerning. We might not necessarily want in the U.S. When it comes to a digital dollar issued by the U.S. government, I think I think one reason that we, you know, a lot of people say the U.S. is behind China is that in China there are privacy concerns, but the government can largely steamroll over them, or at least you know say that they're going to keep it anonymous even if they don't. Whereas in the U.S., there's so much more concern about the civil liberties implications of the government having a ledger that records exactly who owns what and who's paying whom for what. So I think we're going to be much you know, behind on something that we might not necessarily want right now. So uh, you talk a little bit, of, you just sort of briefly talked about uh, digital currencies. But, you know, what do, what do Americans need to know about centralized digital currency? Because, you, you know, you keep kind of hearing that buzz about that every time there's a cryptocurrency bull run. And uh, what does it all mean, though? I mean, is it just really an advancement in technology more than anything? Because most dollars are already digital. So, like, what's the point of a CBD, right? Yes. I think you make a really important point there that I've also made in um, you know testimony to a congressional commission, which is that dollars are generally already digital. So what we're talking about is really some new kind of payment system probably looking like some form of digital cash and whether that really matters. Um, I'm not so sure at the retail level in terms of an average American consumer, you might be able to transact in digital cash, but you're probably not going to get reward points. Yeah. Uh, it might benefit some people who, uh, who don't have bank accounts and thus struggle to do something like pay an Amazon bill without buying a, you know, prepaid debit card, which costs tons of money you just lose, you hemorrhage money on fees when you buy these cards and use ATMs and things. So it could benefit financial inclusion a little bit, but it's very risky. At the global level is really where it gets interesting, where there's kind of a sense that you can directly link these currencies together and it might make it easier to send money internationally. Sure. And think about how much money it costs if you want to buy something abroad, not with your credit card. You have to wire and they're going to charge you up the wazoo with fees and uh, transfer conversions and all that, that kind of process might actually get easier with central bank digital currencies, but it's really, really hard to pull off. Right. You know, what's the, um, I, I guess in terms of where we are in the U S in terms of the, these technologies, where are we now? And I mean, I know you said that there's some interest in the big tech companies, but are, is there any movement there actually? There's some movement. So, you know, Apple is probably the biggest mover at the moment. Uh, Google is also talking about creating this uh, more built out payment system. Mm -hmm. And I think what they're recognizing is that they don't have to compete and go head to head with the banks. Uh, one of the lessons from China is that really the tech companies benefit is like building APIs, handling data, um, managing the consumer relationship, building really solid apps in ways that they can kind of be a base layer for tech in the financial system while still having the banks be the ones who determine whether they're going to lend you money um, and, you know, actually investing the money. But the tech companies could play a really important role making finance a lot more user-friendly and potentially sure. a lot more competitive. But if you, if you look at like Apple Pay, if that's kind of what you're, you're referring to with Apple it's really just, I mean, it, it's just simplifying things, right? I mean, it's not creating a new system. I mean, you're, 
you know, whenever I use Apple Pay, it goes through my regular credit card. Just I like it because I can just click on it on the internet and it, you know, I don't have to put in all my address and all that information, but is it just that, or are we talking about a, a different kind of, you know, um, currency system, uh, altogether? I think the interesting thing is a new system altogether. So in the book, I talk about how it's surprising how little ambition the big tech companies in the U.S. have had in finance compared to their counterparts in China, where they've completely remade the financial system. In the U.S., as you say, Apple Pay is just kind of a technical layer on top of the existing credit card system. Your same card and all of its rules still apply. Uh, but where the, where the potential is in the future is something different, something that might be a lot cheaper. You know, when you go to uh, buy something say for a hundred bucks, the store is probably going to get 97 at the end of it. Many coffee shops spend more money on uh, credit card fees than they do on coffee beans, just to give you an idea of how expensive our existing system is. So if the tech companies can build something new, and that's really where Apple is moving now, it seems, is trying to escape the shackles of this existing bank-based credit card system. That's where we could see a real reinvention. And this is where China shows us that that kind of reinvention can be super powerful and actually really beneficial for, uh, for consumers and businesses by lowering costs overall. So let's talk about the, uh, the implications of that uh, in the U.S. as that starts to develop. Again, um, to me, it seems like really the competition there is not necessarily with cash, but rather with credit cards and other digital forms of payment. Um, is, do you think that's fair? Because I, I, don't, I don't see how this is necessarily a direct competition to, to our, you know, the cash, whatever limited cash is in the system. Yes, I think that's right. Um, one of the main, you know, the, the points of advocacy for central bank digital currency, they talk a lot about financial inclusion, but I'm always a bit suspicious that the people who currently use cash are going to move to something digital. I tend to think that it is going to compete with the existing system. The hard part of doing that is that people like you and me who have really good rewards cards are really hard to get to sign up for something, even if it's cheaper. So one of the things that might have to change is that the merchants might be able to give us a discount if we pay using one of these super low cost new payment systems. They say, hey, we're gonna save a couple bucks on fees. We'll pass on half of that to you and we're both better off. But right now, for a a wide, complex variety of legal reasons, it's hard for merchants to offer that kind of discount. So they don't tend to do that. And that means that we're kind of stuck with the existing system. And the main beneficiaries of that system are the banks that issue the cards. They're the ones who are making the fat fees. The the lowest socioeconomic um, groups in the U.S. are the ones who use cash the most. And um, again, I'm... Uh, you know, whenever the, this kind of discussion happens, um, or there's talk about the central bank, uh, distributed, uh, tokens and that kind of thing, there's always this, you know, question, does that mean that cash is doomed in the U S what's your answer to that? And I guess the answer might be more complicated because it's like, all right, maybe cash is not doomed, but over time, 
over a decade, over two decades, it could be doomed. Is that more kind of what you're thinking or? Yes. So um, I think from a civil liberties perspective and a privacy perspective, it's really important for society to still have cash for someone to be able to make a payment that has no digital record of it whatsoever. And I'm also supportive of things like all the rules that say you can't pay for a house with a, with a trunk load of cash that might've come from God knows what. Right. Right. So you want to have some, some ability to preserve privacy at limited, uh, limited volumes. The challenge for the future is that as everything goes digital, as more and more of what we buy is digital, you know, will places still accept cash? And there, I think there, there will be a smaller and smaller group of people, but there will always be people who want cash. And as long as some people want cash, it's going to still remain in circulation. And it's probably going to need some role for the government to say that stores have to accept it, even if they don't want to. I think so that's in, already in happened yeah. in, in some hyper-local situations. I, I, I heard something about that in the Bay Area where there was, I don't know if you're, you know what I'm talking about here, but there was some situation where, um, you know, merchants were not accepting cash and they actually called it quote unquote racist because, you know, the people who were using cash were again, lower socioeconomic, often minorities. Yeah. In DC, we had the same, uh, same issue with a fancy salad shop that, uh, decided to stop accepting cash. And uh, I think they actually got in trouble and had to start accepting it because, you know, it's full, it is legal tender. Uh, it should be accepted. And, uh, and I think it's important that we retain that option because one of the other lessons from the book is that uh, when you have a digital revolution, some people are left behind. Right. Some people are not going to be able to deal with the complicated smartphone app and really are only able to transact in cash and you don't want a system that excludes those people and doesn't give them any non-digital option. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this is uh, this is really interesting stuff. The book is called uh, the the Cashless Revolution: China's Reinvention of Money and the End of America's Domination of Finance and Technology. I presume you can get that anywhere, right? Usual. Absolutely. Um, is there anything I think that I've not really covered that you think would be useful for people to know before they? Uh, or, or thought provoking as the, uh, you know, as, as we end the show? Sure. I, I think one of the, the main takeaways that's maybe most surprising to people is that we actually have something interesting to learn from China here. Yeah. There's a sense that, you know, China is this place where, you know, we can't learn anything from them because their system is so foreign. And we actually find that, you know, a lot of what they're doing is worth reflecting on. And some of it we, we might want to keep. Uh, a lot of it, we might say it's not consistent with our values, but we shouldn't wholesale reject where they're actually doing things that are super innovative and we should make sure we're not complacent about it. Just thinking that we dominate the world and we'll always do so. So we don't really need to learn from somebody who might be in second place and overall. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um, Martin Korzempa, uh, thank you again for being in Wealth Formula podcast. would love to have you on back uh, again sometime. That'd be great. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you're interested in the ATM Play, uh, ATM Fund, 
Go to WFVelocity.com and check that out. You do need to be an accredited investor. It's a Regulation D 506C offering. Therefore, I can talk about it on this podcast, actually. But um, it is only available to accredited investors who've been verified by third party. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this show and that you're having a nice holiday time of the year. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.